A spike in violent crime around the country, organized gangs of thieves looting stores around the Bay Area, and violent criminals freed from jails to roam the streets. What do they all have in common? They're the result of progressive prosecutors and far-left criminal justice reform. In this special edition of Hold the Line, we take a deep dive into the dangers posed by the disorder in America's prosecutors' offices. Welcome to this special edition of Hold the Line. I'm Buck Sexton. We know that there are progressive prosecutors across the country. We know that there is a left-wing effort to make our criminal justice system, make the courts themselves less harsh on, more lenient to, and sometimes even far too permissive of criminality. Now, they would have you believe, and just recently even Jen Psaki at the White House made this claim, that the mass looting you see on these videos that go viral where they have perhaps dozens of people all in organized fashion breaking into a high-end store and stealing over $100,000 sometimes of goods, merchandise, um, somehow that's caused by the pandemic. That's what they want you to think. Here's Jen Psaki at the West Wing. So when a huge group of criminals organizes themselves and they want to go loot a store, a CVS, a Nordstrom, a Home Depot, until the shelves are clean, you think that's because of the pandemic? I think a root cause in a lot of communities is the pandemic, yes. A root cause is the pandemic. She can't really believe that, right? I don't know. She's not that bright. Maybe she does. That's absurd. Um, there have been huge changes in the approaches of people in prosecutors' offices and even in judges' chambers across the country, and it's part of a Democrat plan here. In fact, if you think back to or listen, you know, watch here, in September of 2020, uh, Kamala Harris was saying that a Biden-Harris administration would, just to take one issue, eliminate cash bail. We will eliminate the death penalty. We will eliminate private prisons, um, eliminate cash bail. I've been a leader on that in the United States Senate. Cash bail is not only a criminal justice issue, it's an economic justice issue, meaning people are sitting in jail because they don't have the money to get out. Meanwhile, the person who has been charged with the same offense and has money is out exercising free will and liberty, right? Out there able to walk the streets. So that's an economic justice issue. So we'll, we'll get rid of cash bail as well. So these are some of the things we'll do. We'll speak about cash bail specifically on the show tonight and how not only has this been extended to people who often have violent criminal past, but sometimes these offenders, while they would have been held, go out and reoffend right after their initial arrest. Plus, there's the progressive prosecutors themselves. Here's a 2016 political piece on George Soros spending millions of dollars on district attorney races. While America's political kingmakers inject their millions into high-profile presidential and congressional contests, Democratic mega-donor George Soros has directed his wealth into an under-the-radar 2016 campaign to advance one of the progressive movement's core goals, reshaping the American justice system. The billionaire financier has channeled more than $3 million into seven local district attorney campaigns in six states over the past year, a sum that exceeds the total spent on the 2016 presidential campaign by all but a handful of rival super donors. So since that time, by the way, Soros has spent a total of more than 
$17 million on races for district attorneys and sheriffs. Now, when you're thinking about Senate races, presidential races, $17 million may not seem like it's that much money, but understand that district attorneys, for example, sheriffs who are elected, there's not very much money in those races. You can tip a race with a pretty small cash outlay, and that's exactly why Soros is doing this. So what is the way forward here? I mean, what are we seeing as a result of it? I mean, for one thing, obviously the biggest spike in homicides in over 100 years, really since we've been keeping track of homicides in one year. That's all part of this. People being released for violent crimes who never should have been. The Waukesha mass murderer, for example, let out on bail right after a violent criminal offense on $1,000 bail total. There are many, many instances here where people say enough is enough. And there are other options. There are other ways that this could be done. We could return to a law and order approach, which makes all of us substantially safer, which would put all of our communities in a better place going forward. You also have to ask, why does the left and why does George Soros have this desire to make it easier for criminals? Maybe at some level it's because they want to punish the country that they think is unjust and racist. And so they allow the deterioration of our communities, the rising homicide rates, and disorder to reign. All right, we've got a great lineup of guests standing by to explain the scourge of progressive prosecutors and the effects they've had on America. Coming up, we'll talk to the Heritage Foundation's Zach Smith about the man behind the criminal justice reform curtain, George Soros. Stay right there. If radical change in criminal justice is what big city residents are looking for, they certainly got it. For years now, there's been a concerted effort on the left to replace tough-on-crime district attorneys around the country with progressive activists. Today, we're seeing the results of that in cities like San Francisco, Oakland, Waukesha, where crime is spiraling out of control and violent criminals are allowed back onto the street far before they should be by any reasonable standard. So what's behind all this? Well, billionaire George Soros, in part, who has poured millions of dollars into campaigns for progressive district attorneys. For more on this, Zach Smith, legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, joins me to share his insight. Zach, thanks for being here. Of course, thank you for having me on. First, can you just give us a sense of how widespread is this? Uh, Often we'll talk about prosecutors like Chesa Boudin in San Francisco, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. Those are two progressive prosecutors that do get some headlines because they've been so weak on prosecuting crimes. But where is this? Do we have any sense of how many progressive prosecutors in major cities are calling the shots? Yeah, unfortunately, this really is a nationwide phenomenon, Buck. Not only do you have those prosecutors you mentioned, you also have rogue Soros-backed prosecutors in places like Chicago with Kim Fox, Baltimore with Marilyn Mosby, uh, Los Angeles with George Gascon, and the list could go on and on. But unfortunately, wherever these rogue prosecutors are in power, uh, the results are really the same. You're seeing they're refusing to prosecute crimes, and as a result, crime rates, especially violent crime rates, are increasing. So how does this work exactly? Because as you, I'm sure, know, 
if anyone brings up Soros backing immediately, they're, they're labeled by many on the left, oh, a conspiracy theory. So, you know, where do we know, how do we know that Soros, George Soros, or his you know, money and his foundations are going to back these prosecutors? Are there, are there records? Walk us through that process a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that my colleague Cully Simpson and I have been tracking really for the past year and a half. And in fact, we wrote a white paper explaining where the money's coming from and where it's going. And so if you look at campaign finance records, George Soros and a couple of other left-leaning billionaires are financing just scores and scores of these campaigns around the country. And again, uh, they are candidates uh, for these district attorney positions who are pushing a radical left-wing agenda that really seeks to fundamentally transform our criminal justice system into something that none of us today would recognize. So there are financial records then that show George Soros backing. Do we have some sense of how much money we're talking about here? And how much money does it take to really be helpful in a district attorney's race? I think a lot of people think, you know, that they don't even really doesn't even come to mind that district attorneys are elected in a whole lot of places. People don't tend right. to get as energized about that as they do other political elections. Well, that's exactly right, Buck. And I think it's important to put this into context. You know, typically DA races, they're often uncontested. They're often low dollar affairs. But what George Soros and his allies have done, they've essentially figured out a way to short circuit the system. They've targeted specific races. They've poured in millions of dollars. Go look at the campaign records. That was the case in Philadelphia with Larry Krasner. That was the case in Chicago with Kim Fox, as well as with other candidates around the country. And they basically over the system so that these rogue prosecutors get in power and again are really implementing this top-down left-leaning agenda that seeks to broadly decriminalize uh, very egregious conduct uh, in many cases. How long has Soros been doing this? Do we have some sense as, uh, as to whether or not this has just accelerated in recent years? Is there some specific event that seems to have been a turning point when all of a sudden the well-known leftist billionaire decided that getting the most soft on crime prosecutors possible into major cities uh, was going to be an important part of, of his agenda, which quite honestly is what it looks like. Well, it really kicked into high gear in the 2016 election cycle. That's when we started to see some of these high profile wins in places like Philadelphia, Chicago, as well as some other cities around the country. But look, Buck, I think what needs to be highlighted here is that George Soros and his allies essentially figured out that instead of doing the hard work, the difficult task of getting legislative majorities in many of these states to change laws that they disagree with, they've essentially backed these rogue prosecutors who are achieving many of their same policy goals by failing to do their jobs, failing to prosecute crimes, and essentially nullifying laws that they simply disagree with. This is something that's unheard of in our criminal justice system. It is not prosecutorial discretion as it's been traditionally understood. And again, I think the results speak for themselves. Not only do violent crime rates increase, but at the core, it promotes a culture of lawlessness. President Biden, this is what you wrote in the, your Heritage article, um, has selected radical prosecutors from around the country. We've been talking about this, right? Uh, Rachel Rollins in Massachusetts is one of them. And uh, you wrote about her, sorry, that Senator Tom Cotton, 
once made clear, it's rare for the president to nominate a radical pro-criminal prosecutor for a U.S. attorney position. Rachel Rollins is the very epitome of a Soros prosecutor. We call them rogue prosecutors because of her radical pro-criminal anti-victim policies that harm victims, harm communities, and attempt to fundamentally transform our criminal justice system. What are some of the things that Rachel Rollins and other progressive prosecutors, I mean, what are their, uh, you know, what, what's their guide, their guiding principles, so to speak, for their jobs? Like, why are they progressive prosecutors? What do they do differently other than just the, gen, the generic soft on crime label? What are they doing differently? Well, they're usurping the role of the state legislatures. I'll give you an example. Rachel Rollins has put out a list of 15 crimes that someone can now commit in Boston, crimes that are on the books that were passed by the state's legislature that she won't prosecute someone for. And to give you an example of how radical her policies are, under these 15 crimes, under her own guidance she sent to her staff, someone could break into your home, be in possession of cocaine, and then resist arrest when the police showed up, and she wouldn't prosecute you for any of those crimes as long as you said that you did all of that just to get out of the inclement weather or did that because you were hungry or in need in some way. Uh, that's a radical policy. It's a dangerous policy and one that, frankly, uh, would not serve her well uh, in the increased responsibility of a U.S. attorney role, uh, the chief federal law enforcement officer in Massachusetts, uh, which the Biden administration has nominated her to be. I've seen that there are some states that aren't just sitting around allowing this to happen because it's usually cities where these progressive prosecutors are most uh, apparent in their, in their actions, the way they're subverting the law. There's a, there's a law being considered in Virginia uh, that would allow the attorney general for the state to step in if the DA refuses to prosecute certain cases. What do you make of that? Well, I think we're seeing that citizens are getting fed up with these local prosecutors, these rogue prosecutors not doing their jobs and allowing lawlessness and crime to fester. Look, not only are we seeing the efforts in Virginia uh, to transfer some prosecutorial authority to the state attorney general, but also in other places, especially in San Francisco with Chase Aboudin, we're seeing an effort to recall him. Uh, and it looks like that recall effort is going to be on the ballot uh, next year. And so I think as the consequences of these policies become increasingly apparent, I hope and I think we're going to see citizens giving more and more pushback and pushing these rogue prosecutors to do their jobs, enforce the laws, and prosecute criminals and seek justice for victims. Thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. The recent mass murder committed by a career criminal during a Christmas parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin, is shining a light on a pet project of far-left criminal justice crusaders, bail reform. We'll have more on that with retired NYPD Detective Harry Houck when we come back. Not long after Daryl Brooks plowed his Ford escape through a Christmas parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin, killing six and injuring at least 60 people, it was revealed that the career criminal was out on a $1,000 cash bond at the time of attack. Brooks had previously been arrested for a domestic violence incident in which he'd attempted to run over the mother of, his of one of his children. So why was a dangerous man with a long rap sheet let back onto the street? Many are pointing at another pet project of far-left criminal justice crusaders, bail reform. 
In cities and states around the country, lawmakers and progressive district attorneys have adopted policies that set low bail amounts or eliminated entirely for certain classes of criminals. The results have been predictable. Spikes in crime in urban areas and avoidable tragedies like the one we saw in Waukesha. For more on this, let me bring in retired NYPD detective, uh, law enforcement analyst, Harry Howe. Harry, good to see you. Hey, how's it going, Buck? All right, let's start with the specific case of Daryl Brooks. This guy lived a life of crime. He's got sex crimes in his past, domestic abuse, crimes against police officers, weapons-related offenses. How does a guy like this get let off by the Milwaukee District Attorney's Office on $1,000 bail for trying to run somebody over with his car before the mass murder he committed? Very easy, Democrat policies. This is the way that Democrats want their cities to be run like. They have no problem with district attorneys like this. Uh, they're constantly talking about bail reform here. So I guess uh, this is exactly what they want. You know, pretty much it worked out pretty well for the Democrats in Waukesha, who allowed several people to be murdered, to include an eight-year-old boy, all right, because of the crazy policies. Um, I don't know what's going on in the brains of Democrat politicians, especially, um, to let something like this happen. You can only come to one conclusion. This is exactly what they want. They want high crime, they want people to die, they want children to die, because every time you turn around something like this happens, things never change in Democrat-run cities. And my only conclusion is this is exactly what they want. I mean, in a statement, Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm acknowledged that bail was set too low here. He said the state's bail recommendation in this case was inappropriately low in light of the nature of the recent charges and the pending charges against Mr. Brooks. His office is currently conducting an internal review of the decision to make the recent bail recommendation in this matter in order to determine the appropriate next steps. Do you think this incident, I mean, you know, Harry, is this going to wake people up to the recognition that these, uh, these bail reform efforts come with really severe, I mean, the consequences we're talking about right now? Well, I'm hoping so. I mean, you can see with some of the cities that try to defund the police, they're uh, putting uh, money back in their police departments. But, uh, you know, I'll have to wait to see what happens because we've had similar incidents like this before happen and where children died and Democrats did absolutely nothing about it. I'm kind of hoping, though, that the voters out there will change the way they think and start voting the right way uh, and, and have uh, people that run their cities that are pro-law and order. So just so I understand this, Harry, did you ever in your career, did you come up against people that were pushing for bail, bail reform like this in the past, is, is this kind of a new, you know, we're speaking a lot about these Soros-backed uh, prosecutors out there sure. and what they have in their progressive prosecutor uh, agenda, right? What they're trying to get, get done. Is this the bail reform issue, is it, is it new or is this essentially a redux or a re, reintroduction of this into the left-wing agenda realm? Well, I never heard of it before until, you know, recently. Um, since, you know, Biden become uh, president of the United States and uh, just before. So it's, it's, it's never been out there. Uh, I never had any problems when I arrested people when I was a detective and a police officer you're requesting large bail on people. District attorneys in Manhattan at that time were really, really good. Uh, and, and they put some huge bails on people. But some of the area, other areas in New York, like the Bronx and Brooklyn, weren't so big on it. And they often let guys go with, uh, with uh, low bail. Um, but um, I'm, I'm hoping things will change soon. Um, I, I can see it with people that I talk to and a lot of reading that I'm doing that people are um, sick and tired of the Democrats and they want some uh, change, you know, in their cities.
So what, I mean, what exactly, the people, the prosecutors that have pushed for this, and obviously some state assemblies have gone along and even passed laws. I mean, New York comes to mind where they have, you know, no cash bail, something you'll hear about, right? So they'll, they'll let people out. Why right. do they say, you know, you've talked about the consequences and how they don't seem to care about how negative this can be and how lives can be lost. But Harry, just mm -hmm. so we understand, what is the, uh, the pitch that is made by the progressive prosecutors and those aligned with them out there for why there should be no cash bail or why there should be bail reform in this way? What do they think is accomplished through it? You know, I think they think it accomplishes more votes. That's the only thing I can think of because nobody in their right mind, all right, is going to let some armed felon out on small bail, like $1,000, like they did this guy in Waukesha, all right, and um, think that, that this person is going to probably come back to court or not commit another crime. So, like I said, my only conclusion is they want high crime in these areas. They want these people to be able to bow down to them and um, basically say, please help us. And they continue to say, yes, we will help you. But then once they're elected, they never help anybody in these ghettos. And that needs a change. I, I also wondering if this is something that affects morale for the rank and file in the police department. I mean, if they arrest somebody who's done a bad thing, and that individual is let out the same day with no bail, do the guys that are actually making these arrests feel like that's a slap in the face? Always, always, even, even before this. Uh, whenever a police officer's putting his life on the line, yeah, I'm sure this guy in Brooks and Waukesha has uh, resisted arrest before and um, gotten fights with police officers, and they're involved by putting their life on the line, fighting with a guy like this, and then all of a sudden, once, once they get him cuffed and they bring him in front of the courts, they're released either with no bail or small bail. It is a slap in the face, all right? It demotivates police officers and they say to themselves, you know what, <laughs> what am I doing out here? You know, let me just come to work and go home every day. So why should I put my life on the line for a government that does not back me up, especially when I am acting in good faith out there on the street and putting my life on the line? Harry. Thanks for bringing your perspective to this. We appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me, Buck. Americans have seen a spike in violent crimes in cities and urban areas around the country, and it's not just major cities like Chicago and Los Angeles. We come back, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, Rafael Mengual, joins us to explain how progressive prosecutors pose a threat to cities large and small. From coast to coast, Americans have seen a spike in violent crime, especially in cities and urban areas. And it's not just big cities like Chicago and Los Angeles. Over the past year, smaller cities like Fayetteville, North Carolina, Jackson, Mississippi, Wichita, Kansas, and Lansing, Michigan, are all on pace to set new records for homicides and violent crime. Many, including my next guest, attribute the rise in violent crime to the progressive assault on our criminal justice system. For more on this, let me turn to senior fellow and deputy director of legal policy at the Manhattan Institute, Rafael Mangual. Rafael, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So I think this will be news to a lot of people because when we think of the spike in violent crime, as it's reported in the national media, uh, and we've seen this for the last couple of years now, we generally think of big cities like Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles, 
But that's not the only place where the spike has occurred. No, that's exactly right. I mean, this is this is a problem facing cities all across the country in varying sizes, um, you know, from coast to coast, from north to south. Uh, and it's something that's been brewing for quite a while. I know, you know, 2020 saw the single largest uh, one year spike in homicides in American history, and that's gotten a lot of attention. But it's also important to remember that a lot of these cities have been struggling with increasing levels of violent crime uh, that, that that go back and predate the pandemic. I mean, Louisville is a perfect example of this. So is Tulsa, Oklahoma, which set its homicide record in 2017 and looks like it may just go ahead and break that again this year. So, you know, we mentioned some of these smaller cities, um, some of the ones that we just talked about a second ago. So you've got Jackson, Wichita, Lansing. I don't think people would, would, you know, they would think, oh, well, in those states, in those smaller cities, you don't get the same kind of progressive prosecutors who are trying to make a name for themselves on the left, like a Chesa Boudin or in, in San Francisco or a Larry Krasner in Philadelphia. But do they? I mean, are, are, there, are there even Soros-backed prosecutors in some of those smaller jurisdictions, those smaller cities, or just people who share the philosophy, the criminal justice philosophy, or lack thereof in some ways, of people like Krasner and Boudin? Oh, absolutely. I think people would be uh, very surprised to see just how much the progressive prosecutor movement has infiltrated this country. And we now uh, have reached a point where more than 50 million Americans are living in uh, jurisdictions with self-described progressive prosecutors. Uh, so it's not just big cities like Los Angeles, Philadelphia, and Chicago, but also smaller cities like Orlando, for example, um, Fairfax County, Virginia other places around the country that, that that have also seen the progressive prosecutor movement bleed in. But it's not just the progressive prosecutor movement. A lot of these jurisdictions are either in states that have recently experimented with wide-ranging criminal justice reforms or in jurisdictions that have been suffering uh, a brunt of, of the uh, police recruitment and retention crisis. So one of the things to keep in mind is that you know why crime goes up and down in any given place at any given time is pretty complicated. Um, but the, the, the other thing to keep in mind is that not every city is going to be as resilient as say in New York is, right? So, you know, there are many other reasons other than just one change in criminal justice policy or in policing policy that might explain why New York's crime hasn't gone up the same way that say Louisville's crime has, right? Other cities may not be as resilient and so it doesn't take as much uh, to create the sort of conditions that lead to, to crime spikes. So when, when we're talking about progressive prosecutors like Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn or George Gascone in Los Angeles, uh, what are the things they do? I mean. What makes someone a progressive prosecutor these days? You said self-describe. So what does that mean? What are the initiatives? What are some of the major plans they want to implement? Or just is it, a, is it mostly a philosophical thing with how they approach crime data, you know, prosecution of crime day to day? Yeah, I mean, I think what makes a progressive prosecutor is someone who is approaching that job with the explicit intent of reducing incarceration as an overarching goal. I think that's a really good starting point. A lot of these people will try to do that in a multitude of ways. You'll often see progressive prosecutors include in their platforms uh, broad non-prosecution promises. So there will be entire categories of crime uh, that they will refuse to pursue through prosecution. So essentially, you have the unilateral abrogation of a duly enacted uh, piece of legislation. Uh, and, and, and that can be the result of a you know, one-off-year election outcome uh, with a, a relatively small amount of money thrown into the race. A lot of these progressive prosecutors will also not seek things like pretrial detention at the same rates, if at all, uh, than their sort of non-progressive counterparts. They'll also uh, seek prison alternatives as responses to, uh, to conviction. So you'll see a lot more uh, rates of uh, a lot higher rates of probation sentences, for example, or time served in pretrial detention sentences, or just shorter sentences sought 
if the prosecutor is in fact going to seek a post-conviction incarceration. So that's another thing. Another uh, aspect of progressive prosecution is sort of focus on the back end, uh, particularly parole and supervision. So one of the things we've seen with, with George Gascon, for example, and Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn, two names that you brought up, are not just uh, um, uh, policies that prohibit prosecutors from opposing parole bids, but in Eric Gonzalez's case, actually, uh, affirmatively uh, um, supporting parole bids from any prosecution that went through that office. And you know this, this results in a lot more people uh, seeing the street a lot sooner uh, than, than they otherwise would have. One of the issues we we're tackling in this special is specifically uh, bail reform which is getting a lot of attention recently because of what happened in, in Waukesha, Wisconsin. What is the, the ideal behind bail reform that they're trying to achieve? You mentioned this is so important. I mean, philosophically, the overarching theme of the progressive prosecutor is to punish people less and have less people in prison, right? Whatever that means in different ways. Bail reform specifically, what are they trying to achieve and how has it actually played out in jurisdictions that have gone forward with it? Yeah, I mean, the, the rationale behind bail reform is actually pretty intuitive and, and does make some sense, right? In a, in a system that relies heavily on cash bail, right, on monetary conditions on release, what can end up happening is you have a situation in which a relatively dangerous but well-off defendant gets to buy his freedom, while a relatively harmless but indigent defendant gets stuck behind bars. Nobody wants a system to work that way. What I have advocated for are systems that actually center the pretrial release inquiry around dangerousness. Now, in in practice, in jurisdictions that have enacted bail reforms, what we've seen are large uh, increases in the percentage of pretrial defendants that are spending the pretrial period out on the street rather than in pretrial detention, mostly because bail just isn't being handed down at the same time. Now, some of those uh, reform efforts include uh, providing judges with the discretion to hold dangerous offenders in pretrial detention, irrespective of, of whether they can afford to make bail by simply denying bail entirely. Um, those are the better uh, uh, reforms, in my opinion. But in practice, what we see is that unless you have prosecutors in that jurisdiction that are willing to take advantage of that and judges that are comfortable with doing that, uh, we just don't see that that lever being pulled often enough. And so what happens is you just have larger pools of pretrial defendants out on the street. And what that means in, uh, you know, for, the, for the communities that these people are going back into is higher rates of crime committed by that population. So if you look at any study, of a bail reform, whether it's in Chicago uh, or anywhere else uh, that, that has actually been enacted, what you see is in a larger number of crimes committed by the pretrial detention population. Now, defenders of the reform will point to the fact, for example, that the rate of offense for the pretrial population doesn't change pre or post bail reform. And they think that this is a big slam dunk. But if you grow the pretrial population significantly, even if that population offends at the same rate, that means in the aggregate, you're going to have a significant uh, uh, degree of, of, of offenses that you wouldn't have otherwise had. had you so not crimes that wouldn't have occurred are, are occurring. Right. That's the bottom exactly. line there. Raphael, fascinating stuff. Really important perspective. Thank you for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Progressive prosecutors and district attorneys aren't the only ones pushing for progressive criminal justice reform. Coming up, Robbie Starbuck, candidate for Congress in Tennessee's 5th Congressional District, exposes the political support for the left's soft-on-crime approach to justice.
Progressive prosecutors and criminal justice reform boondoggles like bail reform are certainly wreaking havoc across the country. When combined with the rhetoric of the BLM movement and support for far-left ideas like defunding the police, you have a recipe for total disaster. But these ideas aren't just being pushed by rogue prosecutors or dark money-wielding billionaires like George Soros. They have support at some of our highest levels of government. Joining me now is director and producer Robbie Starbuck. He's also a candidate for Congress in Tennessee's 5th Congressional District. Robbie, good to see you. Good to see you. How are you doing? I'm good, Robbie. Thanks for being with us. So I know you write on this and you follow this issue closely. Um, Why is the mainstream Democrat Party adopting this far-left criminal justice justice reform? I mean, we've seen this now for over 18 months, disastrous results. Why are they doing it? Because they're no longer the party of JFK. They're no longer the Democratic Party of our grandparents. This is a new party, and the progressive left is taking it over. I hate even calling them progressive because everything they're pushing is regressive, but this is the reality of who they are now. You know, it's kind of like if, if you're married to somebody or you're dating somebody and they show a consistent behavior over years, you know, that's who they've become. It's not some shadow of who they used to be 20 years ago. It's who they are and what their actions tell you, and their actions tell us that this is who they are. So do they recognize the downside of the enormous increase in homicides, Robbie? I mean, they must understand at some level that the Democrat Party is vulnerable if this continues. To be perfectly honest, I think they've taken for granted the voters that they've had for such a long time that they feel like they can get away with this type of thing. You know, so they've really leaned into this sort of woke corporatism while ignoring the plight of normal people. So in a place like San Francisco, where they have a Soros DA and you've seen the atrocious crime rocketing up and people unable to leave their cars parked on the street or even inside a parking garage without it being ransacked on a daily basis, you know, those issues, they're totally divorced from that stuff and they're not worried about what those people are going through. They just expect as long as the D is next to their name, the people will check the box. And I think 2022 is going to be a rude awakening for some of them. Now, I do think there's some old school, you know, politicians that are, you know, over 60 who do understand the issue here and genuinely don't like it, but they're terrified of the new left. And they know that they own the base of the party now, so they can't say anything. So just speaking about the new left and the base of the party, Representative Ocasio-Cortez is out there saying, you know, we've, we've had this experiment in some cities of defunding police. They did it in Austin. They've done it in a number of places, at least either begun to or actually defunded at some level police with disastrous results. But yet Ocasio-Cortez, among the most powerful people on the left in Congress, says that more money is not the answer. There is an increase in crime and in uh, uh, incidents of violence as the country really reopens up from the pandemic and the desperation created by a, frankly, very poor uh, U.S. response to the pandemic in terms of the economic devastation. And so as things open up, we're starting to see more crime and incidents of violence. Now, that should absolutely be a point of concern, but the response to that should not necessarily be over-policing. Over-policing? We're worried about over-policing now. 
That's what she thinks. You know, I wouldn't trust Ocasio-Cortez to guard my sandwich, let alone a city, a state, or a country. Um, the policies that she's pushing, I mean, this is directly out of the Soros playbook. What they're pushing is no bail and, and these tiny bit of bail policies that end up putting violent criminals on the streets. What they really want is, I don't know if you saw this interview with um, Rep Talab with uh, Axios. She was sitting down with Jonathan Swan. and. He asked her, why do you support this bill where it essentially says within 10 years you will release everybody from prison? And even they, once they're faced with the fact that that's what their bill says, I don't know if they don't know what it says. I think they do, and they're just pretending at this point. But once they're faced with it from a mainstream reporter, even they kind of sit there and go, oh, wow, this doesn't look good. You know, I think even they're starting to get the outward perception, but they really don't care because they feel like as long as that D's there, they're going to get away with it. Here's Kamala Harris back in September of 2020 saying a Biden-Harris administration would eliminate cash bail. We will eliminate the death penalty. We will eliminate private prisons, um, eliminate cash bail. I've been a leader on that in the United States Senate. Cash bail is not only a criminal justice issue, it's an economic justice issue, meaning people are sitting in jail because they don't have the money to get out. Meanwhile, the person who has been charged with the same offense and has money is out exercising free will and liberty, right? Out there able to walk the streets. So that's an economic justice issue. So we'll get rid of cash bail as well. So these are some of the things we'll do. You know, there's been, we talked about this tonight on the show, Robbie, there's been uh, a whole lot of offenses committed by people who were immediately released on these no bail policies who had they been held, would not have been committing some of those crimes. Absolutely. I mean, just look at Waukesha. You know, that was somebody with a low bail policy. They let him out. And then what did he do? He turned around and he mowed down children at a Christmas parade. There is a human cost to this nonsense. And by the way, the only thing that Kamala is leading on is bad PR pieces because she's been getting hit left and right from everybody because she's been atrocious as a leader. Nobody trusts her. These policies are a failure. And the human cost is what matters here. I don't see this as a political issue. If Democrats jump on board, tomorrow and say, hey, you know what, Robbie wanted to link arms here and go fight this, I would say happy to do it because I don't care about the politics. I care about the fact that I talk to people who these policies are affecting and it is a real human cost. And politics is too divorced from that. We've got to actually connect with the fact that there's real people who come home at the end of the day and their loved one is dead. They are gone because of these policies. You know, we've got, Harris, we've got to confront again, that. Again, Robbie, sorry, one sec. Kamala Harris back in June of 2020 tweeted out, you were talking about bail issue. Um, she wanted to raise money, uh, bail money for Minnesota BLM rioters. If you're able to chip in now, the Minnesota Freedom Fund to help po uh, post bail for those protesting on the ground in Minnesota. The people that were arrested were not arresting for, arrested for protesting, Robbie. They were arrested for burning down businesses, burning down a police station even. And the current vice president wanted to raise money for them. You're absolutely right. And what did that money end up going towards? It ended up releasing people who went on to violently offend, including people who had vi violated children, okay? What she did 
was just grotesque. And this is the future of the Democratic Party. This is what they believe in. People have to confront that. And this is part of what I wrote about in the New York Post just this week is that we've got to spell out these policies for people, connect the dots and make it unelectable to take money from the people who are pushing this nonsense and make it unelectable to have backed these policies. If people can get connected to the emotional toll, the real human cost of this, they will stop voting for these people. Robbie. You're running for Congress. Tell folks about it. Absolutely. So we're running here in Middle Tennessee in a district that is going to be pretty new. In January, a new map should come out and we'll see what it ends up looking like. But it should have a piece of Nashville in it. And we're running to be the warriors that we believe our country needs right now. We think people need fighters who are going to go there and not be owned by corporate interests, but instead are going to fight for what the people are worried about, are going to go and confront those kitchen table issues and are going to stop playing the ridiculous politics we've seen played by the Democrats with their lives, with their livelihoods, and with the people they love. We've got to end all this. We've got to bring freedom back and empower people to make the best decisions for their lives. So that's what we're going to do here. We've had an overwhelmingly amazing response. Senator Rand Paul's gotten behind us, among many others. And we are going to fight and win this race because Tennessee deserves that type of representation in Congress. Robbie, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Buck. That's all the time we have for this special edition of Hold the Line. I want to thank my guests, Zach Smith, Harry Houck, Raphael Manguel, and Robbie Starbuck for sharing their expertise and perspectives. Have a great night. Shields high.